Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland and John McManus. And John, we a few weeks ago, we spoke about um, Guadalcanal at, at some length and the, the Solomon Islands campaign. And, and we kept touching on Bougainville. And so, uh, th- I mean, although in our last meeting, we had tried to include this, but James just went on and on about Italy. <laughs> To the point, it was just ex- obnoxious, wasn't it? it really no, was. so obnoxious. Just- exclusively elbowing aside the subject that we had, you had slated, John. <laughs> and it'll just cr- not interesting. Oh, no, I held sh- my hand up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Shocking <laughs> business. But um, yeah. and I feel that even by having mentioned Italy, I might set him off. So what? What, what, <laughs> quick, what we should quick, John, quick, get in quick, with Bo- quick. get in with Bougainville. Why you want to talk about it? What's so anyway? The Gothic line. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no, stop it. Let's hear more about Kesselring. No, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <exactly. laughs> nah, the, the Bougainville is the is a capstone of the whole Solomon Islands campaign uh, on some levels, and it's this this you know huge island. It's it's a horrifying place, like so many places in the Pacific. Why are they there? Airfields, you know, airfields from which to, to pummel Rabal. And so, again, I, I think we've talked about this in a previous episode, but it bears repeating. Um, you know, the thinking is that, you know, Rabal is going to be the main objective uh, yeah. to, to take down in the South Pacific as a way to, to continue the advance uh, into the Central Pacific and, of course, on to the Philippines. Uh, Rabal is a very formidable Japanese air and sea base, primarily. You know, so uh, so Allied grand strategy in '42 and for a lot of '43 was predicated on that idea. Now, of course, eventually what they decide to do is just to to bomb it and to bypass it and strangle it and starve it. Yeah. Um, and so you, Bougainville is an example of how you see that. So what had happened is that the the uh, the Third Marine Division invades the western coast of, of Bougainville in November 1943. Uh, carves out an enclave and the Japanese, it's weird. Like the Japanese hold the opposite coast portions of it. I, I, I compare them almost to like uh, Portuguese settlers of the, of the 16th century in a way that they're, they're not really interested in grabbing the whole area. They, they want the kind of 
uh, sea coasts and and they want to have bases and and of course eventually now in this modern context air bases. So they've started to lose the initiative once the Americans are ashore. But they they being you know of the mindset that the, the Japanese often are in this war, uh, they they feel that they have to to go on the offense in order to to snuff out this Allied presence. Um, and and that certainly does make some sense. But the problem with that by the end of 1943 and 44. The Americans have become really strong. Um, this base has been built up into, you know, three airfields, uh, two that can incorporate bombers and one that's a fighter strip, um, not to mention the naval presence and, of course, the, the fortifications that you've got around this perimeter near on the western coast there. So uh, the Japanese conceive of, a, of an offensive designed to snuff out that American base and perimeter. Uh, and they do this. Um, basically being outnumbered two to one. That's the part that's just sort of incredible. So I, I'm no Japanese linguist. I could be butchering his name, but General Hayakatake, who had uh, who had lost at Guadalcanal and had been evacuated. And now here he is conceiving of this idea. And just the, it's like Guadalcanal in the sense that just being in a position to attack is really tough because the Japanese have had to trek from the from that eastern coast through a lot of the terrible jungles, carry most of everything on their backs. There's not much transport. There's no road net. Um, and then get themselves in a position somehow to, to attack the perimeter. And by now, the perimeter is, um, is manned by two army divisions. The Marines are gone. Um, it's the 37th Infantry Division on the on the left as you're looking toward the Japanese and the American on the right. Yeah. So th- think about that from a Japanese perspective, a soldier, what you're being asked to do here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 I suppose in the Japanese mindset, what what options do they have but to do this? I suppose, but but I mean, it's it, it's a, an extraordinary tall order, isn't it? And and the the Americans see it as basically a bushido style attack don't they it's it's almost it's, yeah it's basically people are going to human waves and it's a it's a, a sort of duck shoot isn't it well and it's just like so this line that the americans have set up if you if you can imagine just like a circular perimeter uh, mm. that's anchored against the sea on either side yep and you've got basically dug in log reinforced bunkers uh, with perfect fields of fire where the jungle's been cleared out. Yeah. You have mines um, in stages. You've got barbed wire. You've got um, early warning you know, implements. like It could be cans with pebbles. could be uh, signals equipment, whatever it is. You've got all that. You have some parts of this line that are fortified by like uh, by fire producer. It's like, it's like, drums that have oil in them and uh, if the japanese move forward in a certain spot they're going to tick off uh, a fuse that sets it on fire and basically is going to burn them alive um, <laughs> you've got that and then of course you have the the usual thing of forward observation teams that have uh, that have zeroed in artillery imagine how many tubes of artillery you've got in this perimeter not to mention mortars um, and so as you're approaching as a japanese soldier um, you know, you're extraordinarily hungry. You haven't, you've probably been eating maybe one third rations in the, in the weeks you've been working towards this. You're lucky to have enough ammo. Your artillery support is there, but it's pathetic by American standards. Yep. 
you know, and you're being asked to just throw against this line. So they come up with this concept uh, that Hayakotake does of like a three-pronged attack. Uh, one on each side of the perimeter and then a follow-on and whatever. So there, there's like two key pieces of, of ground, Hill 700 and Hill 260, uh, you know. And so that so a lot of the fighting, once it, this is like March 9th through 17th, 1944. And that, that to me, the date gets your attention in the first place because you think, well, hadn't the war moved on from there by then? Almost. Um and yet one of the most violent battles of the entire Pacific War happens in that time frame on this little place, this horrible place called Bougainville. It's totally forgotten. Um, and, and yet it's it's really important. Uh, because of the, the American perimeter is tiny, isn't it, really? I mean, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's a okay, few miles. About three miles, two, three miles deep. Three Roughly. Miles, I mean, miles, a little more than that. Wide, maybe five, five to wide. eight. Maybe five to eight, something okay. like that. But but, it's, but, it's, the air, but the airfield, the two airfield strips, and actually it's quite interesting because if you look on Google Earth, you can still see them. Uh-huh. There's still clearings in the jungle. So there's there's Peaver Yoke, isn't there? Peaver Uncle. The yeah, two, that's what they call which, them. Which yeah. are opened in end of December, beginning mm-hmm. of January 1944. And if you go on Google Earth, you can still see the two strips. And, you know, the, the furthest one from the coast is five and a half K. So what's that? Like like three and a bit miles. It's just incredible. Yeah. It's not a big place. And yet you've got something in there about 50,000 Americans packed in there. Plus the, plus the ships at sea, you know, and so how much of that is combat manpower? Well, maybe half of that, you know, at, at the front, maybe at the most, at the most, maybe a third. And actually you've got rivers, which is the perimeter, haven't mm-hmm. you? You've got these, these streams, which are marking the perimeter as well. And that's partially why they've set it up there. So that's another thing you have to negotiate as a Japanese attacker, much less attacking uphill for the most part, uh, especially at Hill 700. Um, and you're outnumbered two to one. And yet Hayakotake had been talking with his staff about where he was going to accept the American surrender. Um, he had noticed a flagpole. <laughs> you know, so the, so the Japanese are watching the perimeter. And, and I say, well, they, they look, but they don't see. I'm looking at it now, and you can see that there is a there is this this sort of hill chain on the kind of north part of the perimeter. It's it's a very it's very obvious. You've got so you've got the two airstrips kind of roughly in the middle of this of this perimeter, this sort of U shaped perimeter, really, isn't it? Or, or exactly. N shape if you're looking depending on which way you're looking at it. And then and the kind of top bit, the northern bit, is this this quite pronounced jungle covered hill chain. So the Japanese have got to get over that. Yeah. And, and presumably the Americans have got OPs on the top and what have you. Oh, for sure. And the most famous one is at Hill 260, which this OP is in a, a very tall tree, like a banyan tree. Um, and so it allows you to see you for miles. But, of course, it's a major target, too. Uh, and it's one of the most tragic parts of the battle. Once it begins, uh, this ferocious fighting, um, that tree is just pummeled by mortar rounds, by artillery, by, you know, small arms fire and whatever. And you've got an observation team that's basically cut off up there where the Japanese control the ground below. Um, and, and eventually the fighting is so violent, so ferocious, uh, that the U.S. firepower is coming in there and, and begins to shatter that tree. You know, So the, the observation team does not survive the battle. And I, I've compared that, that particular tree to the, to the famous Spotsylvania oak, which, uh, which is uh, U.S. Civil War fame. You know, it's this oak tree in the Battle of Spotsylvania that just got so much ordinance and is a very famous place to visit today. 
and it really strikes me as quite similar. To wh- where's this tree again? Um, it's at Hill 260. Oh, the North Knob. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's sort of like in front of the perimeter, as it was at that time. It's like an OP in front of the perimeter. And and the Americans at the time said it's, quote, the most expensive tree in the world. And that had a double <laughs> entendre sort of, sort of meaning to it, yeah. you know? Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, so from a, a Japanese soldier is being asked to attack upward, like you say, Jim, with the, in the those knobs, the knobs and hills you're seeing there on Google Earth, and it really is yeah, quite, yeah. quite remarkable how kind of similar it looks to then if you look at the photographic evidence from 1944. Mm. Um, so it's almost this kind of impregnable position on some levels. But but the other thing that's amazing is is there is a tiny little settlement, you know, on the coast at Torakina. Right. But otherwise, it's just nothing. I mean, it would be such a cool place to go and visit. But it's, it's just, how would you get there? Yeah, right. And it, and it wasn't well populated then. No. I think there were maybe forty to 50,000 people on Bougainville as a whole, something like that. And it, and it's an Australian protectorate, isn't it, part of in, in New Guinea, isn't it? So that... The, the, it is. There's no one there. It's another one of those places. There's no one there. There's nothing to fight over except the fact that there are that the enemy's there and you want to fight the enemy somewhere else. Because so much of the Pacific campaign is always about the next place, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So you, you need this place to be able to deal with the next place so you can deal with the next place, the next place, the next place. And that, that's, This is an, a battle completely in that mold, isn't it? Do the, do the Japanese, how do they do then? So, they, so they're, they're depleted by the journey. They're, uh, they're overwhelming odds against them. How do they get on? I mean, is it is it... Do they at any point break the the American line? Do they get 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 in? I mean, what happens? They do somewhat. They they kind of rupture at the at the the spear point of the U.S. line, especially at Hill Seven Hundred, Hill Two Sixty, which Two Sixty is always tough because it's ahead of the line, uh, right. so it's always vulnerable. Um, Seven Hundred though sees some of the most ferocious fighting of the entire Pacific War, where the Japanese capture some of these lead pillboxes, and you can imagine the losses they took. Um, and so it's these intimate fights, pillbox to pillbox, or dugout to dugout, whatever you want to call them, um, that the Americans, really the, the worst of it for the Americans when they're trying to take them back, because now the Japanese are defenders and they're really tougher to deal with then. Um, so the, the American commander of this whole enterprise is uh, uh, Major General Oscar Griswold, who commands 14th Corps, which these two divisions comprise. And I really think he's one of the kind of overlooked U.S. commanders in this war, he always seems to get the crappy details. He'd had the New Georgia fight before this. Eventually, he's going to to get the task to uh, to take Manila, you know, in 1945, which is one of the worst battles of the whole war. He's terrifically competent, um, really a, a fine general. Yes, and you sent us his diaries, which are which are fascinating. Oh, the diary is amazing. Yeah, he keeps a fascinating diary. Um, and, and I just think that the counterpoint is just so fascinating because, uh, Griswold is very much in touch with reality in terms of how he's managing this battle, um, and trying to conserve his manpower resources too, wondering, well, you know, does it make sense to send more people in there to get that pillbox or should we just pull back and just pummel these guys with our artillery? And they're going to kind of start to do the latter versus Hayakatake, who's, who is like looking at this perimeter and, and and fantasizing about where he's going to take Griswold's surrender. It's like, what world is he living in somehow? Yeah. Uh, but h- how do the Japanese do as well as they do? I mean, just the sheer value of their soldiers. Uh, but, they're, you know, the other thing, too, your bigger preoccupation as a Japanese soldier on the eve of this fight 
isn't necessarily how you're going to take that next bunker. It's um, when you're going to capture American rations and be able to eat them. I mean, that, that the soldier diaries are fascinating. I mean, that's always been there. That's always been there, USP. You know, travel light because you're feeding off what you're capturing. And so that's that's obviously the, from an ally point of view that's that's the key is to deny those supplies don't don't give up any supplies to the Japanese. Yeah, and they don't. I mean and that's so the Japanese soldier uh, by the time he attacks is really hungry, he's tired, he's overburdened. Um and so what has he got? He's got his valor. I mean that's that's pretty much what he has to offer in this fight and there's plenty of it. But most of the fighting, really, the harsh, the, the hardest fighting takes place at the at the sort of spear point of that perimeter, and especially, you know, if you're thinking of like the U shape, the middle of that U, that's where the the, the most violent aspects of this are going to be. I'm looking at this amazing photograph of of U.S. Marine raiders gathered in front of a Japanese dugout on Cape Torokino in Bougainville. Mm. There's this group of guys, and they're in their kind of you know the jungle camouflage kit. One of the things that's really noticeable about this is just how young these kids look. Oh, Marine Raiders would be really young. That'd skew very young. Yeah. And so the guy, and I would suspect that's probably from earlier, like when the Third Marine Division is initially fighting, and and they had a fight, not as much to get ashore, but really to take that perimeter and hold it. Um. And 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 uh, yeah, the Marine. So the Marines tended to be younger than the soldiers did. Um. So the the people who are fighting later on against this Japanese offensive, the Thirty Seventh Division, the Marical. Uh, they're probably four or five years older, maybe, you know, 23, 24, 25, maybe. Yeah, because the Americals been been sort of out based in, in, in the Pacific for a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, it's already been through two major battles, Guadalcanal and New Georgia. Yeah. And the, the 37th has been through New Georgia. Um, so these are combat experience units um, that have been now able to, to kind of dig in and use every implement of their firepower. Uh, this is... I mean, think of the artillery. Yeah, you have hundreds of tubes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and heavy mortars and all of this stuff mm. is just going to. And the Americans are just going to pump out hundreds of thousands of shells in the course yeah. of this battle. You know what the Japanese do too? This is just just staggering to me. And and I I, I really do rake Hayakataki over the coals um, in in Island Infernos. You know the the yeah, book I which I talk yeah. about this because I, I just don't understand this. He. The, the limited artillery he's got, he's using it to hit the airfields rather than the, the bunkers he's about to attack. I mean, it seems to me cart before horse kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. mentality. Yeah. So it, it really, yeah, it damages some planes. It's It, it, it uh, maybe impedes operations a little bit, but it doesn't do much for your actual attack where you need it. Yeah. Uh, so to me, it's just... It, it's mystifying. What does Hayakotaki know about the American deployment? I mean, how much does he know? And how much do the Americans know about what the Japanese are up to? Yeah, they both know a lot. And that's the other interesting thing. I mean, right. the, the Japanese have been reconning this perimeter for weeks. Um, and and so they have a very good sense of the disposition of the U.S. fortifications, where they are, how they're manned, what they're up against. And so ironically, they know a lot, and yet they just don't seem to, to realize the implications. The Americans know that the attack is coming. Um, it's been telegraphed because of the, the Japanese patrols, because in, in two things. In one case, there was a, uh, a Japanese unit, a, a, a captain who's killed, and they, they, they look at his body and they find basically all the plans and, and all, all, the, all the intentions that the Japanese right. have. There were also a couple of people captured, and you have Japanese-American uh, soldiers who are part of these U.S. divisions 
whose job is to interrogate these guys and to figure out what the Japanese are going to do. And they, uh, the, the few prisoners you get tell you exactly what's about to happen. And so the, the Americans are just, just ready and waiting for him. They had actually expected the attack two days earlier because that was the original date. Right. Uh, but but uh, Hayao Kotake had, had pushed it back a couple of days, which then really just made this worse because the Americans are even more prepared. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, but so all the Japanese are able to do is just kind of put a dent in this perimeter at the, you know, like Hill 700 and whatnot. Other than that, it really has no success or purpose of any kind. I mean, except to, to waste these fine combat soldiers. You know, 10,000 of them go in. Uh, by my calculations, they take 60 to 70% casualties, and that usually means a fatality. Yeah. Dear God. Man. Because the, the I mean, there's famously there's that picture of Lucky Legs, the, the, there's a the, the Sherman on Bougainville, you know. The, the, so the, the Americans have the Americans have everything at their disposal um, mm-hmm. to deal with the Japanese. So they've armor. It's not, and it's they're up to Shermans at this point. It's not just Stuarts, is it? It's it's all the heavy metal they could possibly bring bring to bear. And it, I mean, it it's hard not to see a, a little as a, as a bit one sided, isn't it? I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it really. It is. It, as as a later generation of uh, U.S. military personnel would say, it's not a fair fight, and that's the yeah. way we want it. And, yeah. I, and I think I think this is a classic example. I mean, I, I think this, in a way, is worse than what you saw at Guadalcanal. Hmm. Um, now that could be understood in the context of how important Henderson Field was and what was at stake at Guadalcanal. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the fact that uh, maybe in the September attempt uh, that maybe you have the Kawaguchi brigade has some sporting chance. Maybe yeah. Um, these guys really have no chance because they're outnumbered. I mean, we all know in an attack, you're supposed to have what two to one, three to one ratio four, right? At least, at least. Yeah. And yet they're outnumbered two to one. Uh, so what, so it's, but you know, I say that, but it's, it's bad news. If you, if, the three of us are at the front in one of those pillboxes that yeah. happens to be now outnumbered in this particular area where we're taking yeah. on two yeah, Japanese yeah. companies and we're a platoon. So that yeah. happens too. There's some really amazing American accounts from survivors who are part of these very intimate fights. And it's almost creepy because, you know, it's like these are heavy dugouts. And, and so there's like, like a guy, a survivor in the dugout and the Japanese are, are, pitter-pattering above you know you hear them on the <laughs> above on the roof kind of thing and, yeah. and they're throwing grenades in and and uh, and then you're they're in the dugout with you or they're in the next dugout or whatever and there's fighting going on at night and all of this stuff it's uh, it's incredibly traumatic for the the americans who are really right there at the spear point of the front line um if you're an artilleryman uh you know three miles back it's target practice yeah yeah yeah, I mean, yeah happy yeah. days yeah well, yeah. as as always, it's always the infantry. You have to suck it up, isn't it? Most. Yeah, they always get it the worst. <laughs> There's airstrikes too that are going to be part of this as well, um, yep. and of course the naval side of it as well. And uh, you know, yes, because seen... presumably the two airstrips they develop, they're operating for out, are they? They are. They are. And and so the, why wouldn't they? So the 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 Japanese artillery bombardment is going to impede upon that some, um, and it's going to do some yep. damage, but it doesn't really ground Griswold's air. Uh, you know, as the battle goes on, there's going to be fighters that are available to you for these strikes if you want them. But really, in some ways, they're they're kind of your last resort because you have so much artillery and mortar support sure. and some of the tanks um, and, and these flame weapons and all that. 
And the airstrike could be a little dicey, you know, in terms of friendly fire. So, you know, when this whole thing resolves itself by March 17th, um, you have on your hands, you know, just, just a bloodbath that destroys any offensive capability the Japanese have. Yeah. And so what, what the Japanese are hoping at that point is that Griswold will come out of the perimeter, start to try and chase them down, and that they'll really then nail him once you get to the East Coast, because then the Americans will be depleted by the jungle and yeah. all that. But he doesn't yeah. take that bait. Um, he's very smart. He, he realizes... Yeah, he's like, there's no purpose to that. So all he wants to do is send out patrols to control some of the other hills that are just beyond what had been the perimeter. And that's yeah. what you see, you know, April and May and all that. And in the previous episode, right. we were talking about the, the 93rd Division when we were talking yeah, about Logan Hill. Yes, yeah, yeah. They turn up and they're part of this aspect of the fight, although there was one regiment that was in play during the, the attack, but they're in a reserve position. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. So when do, when do the Aussies turn up? So the Aussies are going to turn up uh, later into so deeper into 1944. Because they basically take over, don't they? They do. And, and I, that is a really kind of a key moment, I think, in the Pacific War as well. The Aussies in, in 42 and 43 are arguably the lead partners in, uh, you know, in the South Pacific among the Western allies. And, and uh, they're really doing a lot of the ground fighting uh, on New Guinea. Um, by 1944 they're starting to be these sort of tertiary players in which the Americans, once they move on from some of these godforsaken islands, leave Australians then to kind of back clear and garrison and, and fight. And so th this is then the ambivalence for the Australians. 
is being consigned to kind of the strategic backbench. Um, but maybe you kind of want that too, because you're not losing as many people. Yeah. So point of controversy in Australia today, as I understand it, is that these operations like on Bougainville and other places where you're losing lives to fight isolated Japanese who really have no impact on the war anymore. Yeah. Is it worth losing people for that? Well, and it, and it's because uh, it's also because the you know Australia has turned turned to the U.S. because it feels let down by the British Empire treating it as a junior partner and and landing it in it in Singapore and finds itself a junior partner. You know that it that 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 the, it's not being treated with parity by the Americans either. And uh, and as especially as you say, they have been the lead partner and they have done some of the very very hard yards in that part of the world um, uh, and, and, and are given mopping up to. I mean, I suppose, you know, given, given, given how terrible the offensive operations that the Americans, they go on to do, is it such a bad, you know, being, exactly. being so I mean, philosophical, is it such a bad thing? I don't you think know, it is in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, mean, not, you're, not, you're not going to Iwo Jima, are you? You know, like, yeah. Can you lucky stars? <laughs> exactly. Or the Philippines. I know. And yeah. So yeah, exactly. in that sense, I mean, especially from a soldier's perspective, for sure. Yeah. From the sort of, you know, bird's eye perspective of statesman and strategy and all that, you're like, well, this is sort of backbenching Australia, uh, you know. But it, maybe, maybe that's good. But, I don't but, know, but this but. is also, this is also. I mean, th- th- these places are brutal places to to just exist, let alone actually have to fight any Japanese. I mean, the leeches, the jungle sores, you know, the 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 the, the torrential rain the wet season, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you you just get a sense of it from just looking at the photographs of Bougainville that this is a just a terrible place in which to exist. You know, it yeah, is. Incredibly hot and sticky. And and that's what's so fascinating and, and, you know, you're about it to me. a long way from home. It, it is, and yet it turns into this U.S. city, this modern American city, in spite of being this horrible place. Um, as you get deeper into 1944... It's a base now for, you know, tens of thousands of U.S. military personnel um, who basically have all the, you know, a lot of the luxuries of life. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so there's, um, you know, 100,000 measurement tons of materiel coming in every week. God. And a lot of it How is... How much? 100 million? 100,000. 100,000 100, measurement tons of material wow. coming in every week. <laughs> there are ice plants. There are ice cream dispensaries. Um, there are 66 wow. chapels built, hundreds of services uh, that are going on. There are, um, you know, well into double figures in uh, baseball fields, uh, volleyball courts, uh, tennis courts, boxing rings. Um, I mean, you're living in, in, uh, in tents, certainly, but also yeah. in Quantum and I huts. Felt- and I thought Camp Bastion was impressive. So <laughs> it's incredible. There, there's like a there's there's forty different PXs you can visit throughout this perimeter, what? where you can buy. Listen to this, guys. You, you can buy soda, watches, pens, lighters, uh, cigarettes, dictionaries, alarm clocks in case you need an alarm clock to, to get up for your patrol or whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> Whitman's chocolates, even moccasins. <laughs> Wow. You can buy at the PX. You've got, uh, you know, of course, you've got Mother's Day that comes up in May. Yeah. And uh, a lot of soldiers were buying money orders to to, to uh, send flowers to their mothers back home or, or send Easter cards, you know, that, that spring um, movies. There are like dozens of theaters 
Yeah. And and so Bougainville and its movie theaters become such a big deal that not only are you going to have second run movies that you're watching, but first run movies. Wow. Where the, the wow. stars themselves come and promote, you know, like, like we do premieres or whatever yeah. in the latter era. It's like that. Um, you know, it's like mind blowing. So, so going my way, it happened tomorrow. Um, marriage is a private affair, devotion. All four of those films actually launch on Bougainville of all places. Dear God. Isn't that mind blowing? Like, because it's such a kind of stable U.S. city, sort of, um, in which you can just watch movies 90 percent of griswold's guys were were seeing movies had access to movies at any given time um who who didn't amazing who didn't of course the you know the the dog faces on the line who are manning the perimeter Mm -mm. uh, which that's a different world then but you would rotate back and isn't that wild to think of yeah and this and you know you look at it now there's just nothing there it's just jungle yeah well, and that's the thing, and and I'll bet if we looked at if we could somehow find an image from say 1945, there really wouldn't be much there anymore either. Yeah, it's this moment in time when you have Bougainville as a key base and as a as a bombing platform against Rabaul, but soon the war is going to move on, and and so a lot of those guys, 14th Corps, eventually is going to gravitate more towards the Philippines by the end of 1944, obviously yeah, 1945. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so for those several months, though. Bougainville is this bustling place uh, where you might have been stationed and had no more danger than if you'd been in a, a post in the States, I guess, on yeah. some levels. Um, extraordinary, isn't it? Here's, here's the other thing. So the movies, you know, one of the things you'd see is movie tone news, right? So you're seeing uh, footage from the war and all this. And and, uh, and one night they were watching a movie. Some of these soldiers were watching a movie. And uh, there was footage from, from uh, earlier in the war, and it showed the the sinking of USS Lexington. And then all of a sudden, this voice from out in the trees begins to shout, Banzai, Banzai. Well, it was a Japanese soldier who had holed up and was watching the movie himself, but couldn't (laughs) restrain himself when he saw Lexington going down from his own patriotism. So they went out and they policed this guy up, you know, and and made him a POW. Um, (laughs) There was a, the, the baseball, there's like baseball leagues going on. And as this thing developed, uh, the the soldiers of the 37th Division noticed that there was a, a, a uh, like bedraggled looking Japanese soldier who was out there about a mile away, say, and would just sort of hunker down on a tree and watch the games. And he would cheer for their team. You know, when they scored a run, he, he would he would cheer and whatnot. <laughs> and and uh, so they they didn't have the heart to go out and, and get the guy. He was just there like, oh, this guy's a baseball fan and he's not hurting anybody. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like it's kind of surreal. That's absolutely bizarre, isn't it? It that's is. Incredible. It's bizarre. This stuff was going on, you know. So wow, and that's wow. that's how you would have been spending a lot of your time as a as a soldier, because mm. it's boring as hell otherwise, and it's a horrible place to be. So yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. But 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 yeah. but it it that's it until August forty five. Is it just that that perimeter? Yeah, yeah, but it's 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 uh it's getting denuded, you know, by the end of nineteen forty four when Fourteenth Corps is going to start to to you know. 14 Corps is going to be in on the lead of the, the invasion of Luzon on January right. 9th, 1945. So yeah. Griswold's guys are leaving, getting aboard ship, you know, several weeks before then. And what's interesting is that they have ceremonies in which there's like a handover with the Australians. 
and ceremonies to commemorate a, a very beautifully tended cemetery of those who had lost their lives in the 1943 and 44 fighting. Yeah. Right. Um, but it really is a kind of a moment when, when the baton is passed and when Bougainville is going to become this kind of backwater. So I would, I would think by the end of the war, by like VJ day, there's not that much there anymore. Um, and, and it becomes like a lot of other posts through the Pacific war. Well, now you have the wastage, all this incredible stuff that you've had. Just now it's molding moldering or thrown at sea or, or sold at pennies on the dollar to locals or whatever um, trucks that are driven into the ocean, you know, or just abandoned yeah. or all of that kind of stuff. But, uh, but in this, in that moment throughout 1944, you would have lived some level of an American lifestyle, uh, you know, as all this stuff has happened, you would have had the USO show Francis Langford comes, uh, Bob Hope is there, uh, you know, wow. Jerry Colonna, all of them. They all come and, you know, they they, they, uh, they perform before either, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands. Just kind of depends. Hmm. Um, and but it's yet, amazing and it, how you turn, turn Bougainville into this, this city in the jungle, just cleared away, you know, around these two airstrips. And that's really it. That's, uh, there's no attempt to kind of get the rest of the island because what's the point? Which is smart. And I think yeah, it could have been spot. taken into account on other islands in the in yeah. the Pacific. Yeah, you don't need it. Peleliu. Yeah, why um, bother? Yeah. yeah, you really don't need you can the rest con- of it. Contain the other side. Why bother? Yeah. Um, do the do the Australians end up with quite such a complex, or are they doing things uh, uh, on more of a budget? I think they're doing things on more of a budget. Yeah, <laughs> inevitably, <laughs> um, everyone is comparatively. I yeah. think, but uh, but yeah, I mean, they're doing uh, like low level patrolling to harass even on the East coast. And of course they're eventually going to sort of track down the surrender of the Japanese at the, at the end of the war. By then, uh, Hayakataki had either suffered a stroke or heart attack, something like that, 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 uh, kind of debilitated him physically though. I think he was still there, but there was another officer who really controlled what remained of the Japanese armed forces. And I think that's another window in the Pacific war too. Um, you know, we tend to focus on the guys who are front and center at Iwo Jima or Okinawa or whatever, but there were hundreds of thousands of Japanese military personnel who were in these backwater places. Yeah. Um, you know, and they weren't in good shape, but they were still there. Yeah. You know, there were, there were something on the order of about 3 million who are, um, processed, interned, and then repatriated from 1945 and 46 in that time frame. That's wow. amazing, isn't it? That's really it huge is. amount. That's it's incredible. kind of staggering. Well, and you've got the whole Burma army. You've got the Burma army area. So you've got loads and loads and of China. Japanese troops there. And then you've got, you know, Bougainville and all these other places that have been sidestepped. And Philippine, parts fun. of the Philippines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like Rabal. Rabal yeah. itself, which, you know, probably hit six figures at some point, uh, I think. Yeah. And, and New Guinea, still people on New Guinea by the end of the war and all this. So it's like this, these these isolated places. Yeah, uh, but you had to fight the war that way; otherwise, you'd still be out there. I mean, yeah, it would still be going. It would still be going on. Um, yeah. uh, do, do, do the do, I mean, do the Aus- Australians? Uh, they don't fight any uh, sort of major encounters, do they? That it, it, it's it's more kind of patrolling and and the odd clash, but nothing as epic as the as the perimeter battle. Oh, nothing like that. No, I mean the Japanese don't have that capability anymore. Yeah, uh, the, the, yeah, the Australians are, are mainly doing the, the classic small unit patrolling and, and all that. And, and the Americans have been doing a lot of that too. 
The Australians kind of take that over. Um, and, and just kind of make sure that the Japanese aren't going to be able to regird, resupply, re-strengthen, and yeah. become a threat yeah, yeah. again. For, for, so it's a contained. Threat. Yeah. yeah. Rather than just kind of, a pain in the neck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like what the, you know, what the, like the 94th Infantry Division is doing um, in France throughout a good yeah. bit of the of night, fall of 1944, just sort of babysitting yeah. whatever bypass Germans there are on that West Coast or whatever. Yeah. It's it's kind of similar to that, yeah. Um, but it's but it's just it's just sort of backwater. I mean, it's <laughs> it's the kind of thing that mattered to nobody unless you were there, I guess. But why? Why? Well, why did? But why did the Bougainville? You know, as you said earlier on, John, that basically, as far as everyone's concerned, the war's moved on from here. It's not. It's not the focus of people's attention anymore. And yet, you've got the also got the, the the strange thing that you end up with a city there is it is it a thing people come to know about in the u.s or does it does it remain sort of off the radar because there's more there's, there's mm. things getting closer to japan that are more it's totally off the radar now if we took 100 americans i'll bet maybe one out of 100 could could tell you that americans were on bougainville or that had played any role in the pacific war and that one would probably be me um you know, so <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> at the time, um, you know, it's the Bougainville story is competing with all the other dramatic things that are going on yeah. throughout the world. So yeah. if you had somebody there, you would have known about it. And there's reporting of it. Um, and you were in touch, uh, you know, like if you're an American serviceman on Bougainville, you're in touch with American mass media. Yeah. If I got, you know, my gosh, in the fall of 44, you're listening to the World Series. Uh, on a radio, there's a radio station on Bougainville at that point. Yeah, and, there's a uh, photo so, of it. And, I, and, I, and I, that, of course, that World Series has a, a soft spot in my heart because it's it's an all St. Louis World Series with the St. <laughs> Louis Cardinals against the St. Louis Browns, uh, which with the right outcome of the St. Louis Cardinals winning, of course. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's a great series. Um, so that's the ultimate for you, isn't it? I mean, it is. It kind of is. Absolutely. But uh, so, you you know, you would have been in touch with that. And I think, so I think it's known at the time, uh, but, you know, within a few months, especially by the time uh, MacArthur's forces land in the Philippines in October 44, Bougainville is now forgotten. And it's the same thing with Hollandia. Yeah, here we are. Radio in, City. On New Guinea. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so this is just sort of the pattern of the Pacific War. Australia had been the base in 1942 yeah. Yeah. by necessity. And it kind of always would be, but if you're an American passing through Australia, there's a greater likelihood that happens within that first half of the Pacific War rather than the latter half, I suppose, mm. Um, mm. because the war is obviously moving north. And once the Philippines are in the equation, that's where you're going. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that that becomes, that's that's the sort of manpower suck for the Americans in the, in mm. the war against Japan for the most part. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's, fascinating isn't it such an epic battle can basically kind of just simply slip off the radar oh and uh, you know uh, what uh, interesting i didn't know about it even until i was in grad school or something i, I mean yeah that's amazing isn't it yeah and, and and the reason i found out is that you know that we had we knew 37th division veterans you know what in uh, the doctoral program when i was at uh, university of tennessee you know yeah. that we were getting material from them 
And I was like, what is this battle? I knew they were at Manila. I knew they were at New Georgia. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, there was because, and this is also true. Another, because the Marines had invaded Bougainville and then there was a sense that, oh, the Marines took it and then it's over. And that, and that's another very American thing of, well, I guess the Marines did the fighting there and that's all they're fighting. (laughs) There was, well, actually no. (laughs) And, And so I was part of that too, part of that mindset. It's really quite a story, actually. It's an amazing story. Yeah, absolutely it incredible. It appears that there's YouTube footage of Bob Hope there. Um, uh, if oh, really? Put, if you put, put, put Bougainville uh, USO into Google, you get, you get, I think, YouTube footage of Bob Hope there. It's it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Because I suppose uh, soldiers in, in, in Italy end up feeling... Um, and I've dragged it back to Italy there for you, Jim, just to <laughs> yeah, <reasons laughs> bring it full circle. Maybe, you know, they, 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 maybe they feel that they're not the main event and that they're mm-hmm. being forgotten about and that they're being, they're fighting these epic uh, Titanic battles against the, the Germans in, in Italy and, and that they're not really getting the sort of glamour, the attention that they maybe feel they deserve. And it's interesting how, how that can happen in war, especially given this is this is this is citizen soldier armies where everyone's supposedly the same and everyone's everyone's sacrifice and effort is equal and you're part of the strategic whole the idea that a battle can simply disappear out of public um imagination is uh, it's it, it's it's pretty incredible really isn't it it, it, it yeah. raises it raises is. quite a few questions well and it, it leads to a lot of resentment and yeah. uh, because the, you know if you were one of these soldiers uh, you know, obviously you weren't really making money off this or whatever. So your no. payoff, if there is such, is credit. And that's the way Americans thought yeah. of it at the time. You get credit for taking XYZ and accomplishing this and credit on the home front among the among the home folks. Yeah. If you're lost in the maw, what credit is there then? Yeah. I think of it today because, uh, you know, I mean, of course, every June... There's enormous commemorative events in Normandy. We know this. We've all been part of it. Yeah. It's great. But in June, I might have fought on Saipan. I might have fought in New Guinea in the Drinimor campaign. So why isn't there a big tribute for me Um, or Italy? And and your your sacrifice and contribution is just as valid there as it's anywhere else, isn't it? Sure is. Sure is. So in March of 44, um, I could be some poor schlub at Anzio fighting off the Germans there, or I could be the poor schlub at Bougainville. Yeah. What commemoration do we have for them all these years later? And what discussion did we have them at the time? It certainly was all kind of uh, backbench to the, the run-up to the second front, right? Where there's this great anticipation of what's about to happen with the invasion of France, and that's front and center. You know, so. Well, the great thing is, 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 is in this 21st century, there's a thing called a podcast, and uh, what you can do with that is, <laughs> is, is, is you can talk about great. all the all the forgotten heroes and all those forgotten people who've 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 had had 80 years of resentment, and we can put them <laughs> right. back absolutely to the forefront. But the thing is, John, I mean, one of the things, certainly in publishing in this country, is very notable that is that forgotten is the sort of adjective that gets. Mm tossed in in order to you know maybe move a book along but this is the thing that genuinely is genuinely it is, is forgotten. <laughs> it's yeah. actually a forgotten thing this is not it's not we're not using the word forgotten to attract attention to it it actually is a thing that has, has kind of disappeared out of the, the story it really is true it, it is forgotten yeah i'm just stunned by looking on the on google earth and looking at that area and uh, looking at Torikina and and where you I can know, see the two airstrips mm-hmm. still clear in the jungle i know just that that's still that landscape marked by it and i would suspect i don't know 
But I would suspect if we went to the Hill 700 area, we would recover a lot of scraps. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of fragments, a lot of, yeah, a lot of indicators really. of what went on there. A lot of scars. Let's go. Landscape. Let's do it. Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> you know, how Let's hard do it, it today. Be? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah isn't that amazing oh, to man. think of though that the and it's uh it's it's part of this culture that ends up in this place that no one could have imagined yeah and it's a kind of one-off unlike normandy say which we can all see in mm-hmm. the tangible you know yeah uh, or many other world war ii sites i mean i think we'd all say that italy is a pretty important place to all of us now and the place we visit or whatever Bougainville isn't that way though, is it? It's uh, yeah. it's just something different. Yeah, it's like who's there, what's it for, and all this. And of course, it means a lot to the locals. Yeah, um, but there aren't very many. Mm. You know, right. and and how significant then does that become in the post-war sort of vision of this whole thing? Um, it really gets lost in the maw of what become bigger, and and I think certainly more important battles, obviously in the Philippines and the Marianas. Um, you know, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, just well, amazing. Well, thanks so much, John. Um, uh, uh, uh you know, because I, I'll be honest, when we look at Guadalcanal the other day, and we're looking at the Solomon Islands, we're looking at the you know that whole archipelago, and you said, oh, there's Bougainville in the middle of it. Was, All right, is there? That, that's that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, yeah, what the hell is that? Who yeah, cares, what the hell's right? that? What what the hell's going to happen there? Yeah. Um, but no, th- that, uh, thank you so much. Um, uh, thanks everyone for listening. You're all going to go off to the uh, Google Images now and Google Earth and have a good look because you really can. You can see the two the two airstrips and the fighter strip along the which is along the shore as well, um, which is the, the most extraordinary thing that that that, that the scars are still there. It's just, yeah. it's just yeah, that. It really is. It's just that. It's just and then those amazing photographs and, and seeing M4s in the jungle as well is, is, is something, you know, that, that, that there's tanks, American tanks is really a proper indication of a one sided it is. And they've got the latest gear as well. It's not like the Australians later on who are making do with Matildas and things with old British obsolete models or the, the, although the British do get Shermans in Burma in the end, but it's fascinating to see that because it just shows how one-sided things are, and yet we don't even know about it. It's extraordinary. I know. Just gives you a sense of the vastness of World War II. Yeah, exactly. The vastness yeah. of World War II, which offers us the opportunity to talk about many, many more subjects as That's we go forward. the beauty forward. of it. And we, we only, I mean, that was like 30 seconds of Italy, so I think we've done quite well there. <laughs> Comparatively yeah. so, yeah. yeah. I mean... I'm not, There'll I, be yeah, more Italy. I'm confident in other. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty glad how much you've been. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the indulgence I've already had. Trust me. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this. We'll see you again very soon. Bye bye. Cheerio. See ya.